the challenge, the opportunity to connect. The 1960s, a time of imagination and change, a time of anger and fear. The 1960s, a program called Challenge. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Looked at our connections, our divisions, through the lens of faith. Nearly 60 years later, during these challenging times, we'll take a new look at our divisions, our connections, in a new program called Challenge 2.0. In last week's edition of Challenge 2.0, we examined the connections, but also the tension between personal rights and personal responsibilities, a tension which has increased greatly during this COVID pandemic. In No One Tells Me What to Do, Part 2, we continue this discussion on the implications, the dangers, and also some possible solutions. Well, we're fortunate to again have with us this week, Pastor Liz Carney of Longview Presbyterian Church, who also serves as a hospital chaplain, and Dan O'Neill, the founder of Mercy Corps, uh, which has been rated the fifth most influential aid and development agency in the world. Uh, thank you both so much for joining us again. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks for having us. Recognizing this is part two of a discussion we began last week, I think it's probably worthwhile to mention that uh, much of the impetus for coming up with this as a topic uh, came from videos that were aired by the State Department of Health. Uh, they were aired last year, perhaps they're still being aired this year. Uh, and it was aimed at countering the pushback from some who didn't like the efforts to go ahead and have us join together in meeting this pandemic and uh, to protect each other. So we're going to just take a moment, we're going to play that video and we'll come back and talk about it. My name is Reverend Liz Carney and I'm a co-pastor at Longview Presbyterian Church in Cowlitz County. The core value of my life is to love my neighbor as myself and that was an integral part of why I decided to get vaccinated. There's actually very little in the Bible about protecting our personal rights, but there is a lot about responsibility to one's neighbor. I believe it's an act of not just compassion, but an act of justice to get the vaccine to make sure that our community can be more protected. So having watched that video on rights versus responsibilities, Liz, may I ask you first, what led to your perspective on that? This pandemic, as it has for many people, for me, has only highlighted the ways that whether we like it or not, we are inextricably connected to one another. And in my opinion, any effort to try to make individual choices that I have convinced myself don't impact anyone else is to live on a false island that's not real. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and so I, I really felt passionate about communicating this perspective that, you know, we can either live as if our actions don't impact other people, or we can embrace what I believe is the reality that our individual choices do impact the collective. And it's actually in our self-interest to be thinking about how our choices impact our community, because then we can live in this cooperative society where we're supporting one another and not just thinking about what do I need, but what does my community need? And that ultimately in the long term is how all of us end up at thriving, in my opinion. So that was a real uh, impetus for wanting to be a part of this commercial. Dan, as you developed Mercy Corps and as you saw a need to respond to hunger, uh, to poverty, to disease uh, and violence, uh, what led you to have that sense of 
personal responsibility to not essentially say, well, it's their tough luck as opposed to something I need to involve myself. What made you make that shift? Well, you know, um, I would have to say that the, the overwhelming uh, news coverage around the Cambodia refugee crisis mm -hmm. in 1979, it changed everything. I was living in Hawaii as an art director in a, in a interfaith based, faith based group as a volunteer. I did that for the same agency for four years. And I was shocked and stunned by what I was seeing. And I realized that as an American, I was partially responsible for the dominoes that fell mm -hmm. from the Vietnam War. Now, we went over there and we fought a, a losing battle and we killed a million people. And we also invaded and bombed Cambodia in a secret air campaign called Rolling Thunder, which destabilized the government and allowed the Khmer Rouge to take over and rule that country and ended up executing uh, hundreds of thousands of people and many, many others were forced, both Vietnamese and Cambodians, out of the country to become refugees. And it was, you know, there was every night on the news, it was all about Cambodia and about the, you know, the Southeast Asia going through this crisis. And that's the spark that activated me to say, hey, let's, let's pull pastors from all churches together into a dinner meeting. In Beverly Hills, California, at my family's house, they're my wife's family, and we decided to do something. And uh, Rosalind Carter was involved, and she reached out to me, and and I brought her in, on board, and she she helped us get launched. And between that, and uh, the you know the faith community raising funds and sharing that message is what was the fuse that launched Mercy Corps. Mm -hmm. When we look at this issue of individual rights and responsibilities, it isn't necessarily always opposed. It, it strikes me that some people might well point out that when we talk about individual rights, those have led to some important breakthroughs in terms of abolition of slavery, uh, recognition of rights of people of different colors, different genders, different sexual orientation. Uh, but what is the point at which we move from important self-recognition and preservation to self-absorption and denying or actively working against the ability of others to thrive. Uh, Dan, perhaps you can start on that. And then Liz, I'd like your perspective on that as well. You know, I think Pastor Liz makes a really good point when she talks about the interconnectedness that we all have. Um, some of my reading uh, and conversations among those in the Buddhist community have a lot to do with, with the oneness, that there is no such thing as the other. Mm -hmm. And when we realize that, we realize that our actions, even our thoughts, are going to have an impact beyond ourselves uh, that, that then become a responsibility. So I think that the rights and responsibilities are two polarities that need one another, if you will. I totally agree with what Dan has stated. I also think that power analysis is really key, in my opinion, when we're talking about um, those uh, moments in history when folks uh, advocating for their personal rights led to these breakthroughs you were talking about, Jeff, because 
um, those were led by people who were experiencing real bodily oppression mm -hmm. um, because of who they were. They were excluded, oppressed, violently attacked by those who held power, not just personally, but had whole institutions backing them up. Mm -hmm. um, and so when those folks from the bottom are asserting their personal rights, it's to bring them to equality, not to raise themselves above, above other people. And this actually makes the world better for everyone. Like Dan is saying with this interconnectedness, when everyone has what they need to thrive, all of us are gonna be healthier and safer. And so I, I think the problem enters when people who come from historically and institutionally privileged backgrounds start throwing around the word oppression for things that simply make them uncomfortable or that ask them to live as a citizen in a global community Mm -hmm. rather than as their own individual island. I can't remember who said this, but I've heard it said before that um, if you've always been in a group who has hoarded power and had the power, then equality is going to feel like oppression <laughs> and at first until we can get to some equalizing oneness, which I think is the way things were designed to be. Um, but I do think that although that power analysis, I think is key uh, when we're in these conversations that are so fraught. Now, both of you come from strong faith backgrounds, and yet we see that some people that identify themselves as being uh, informed by their faith are very resistant to this. And it's been suggested perhaps that they view faith as a spectator sport as opposed to a participatory sport. Uh, do you agree with that perspective? And if so, how do you get around that? Well, I would just venture to say that there is no choice in it that we are participators. We're already in the game. So I, th I think the question is, is how do we navigate those waters in a meaningful way? Um, for me, I felt that my responsibilities included promoting human rights campaigns in the countries in which we were working. Mm -hmm. Now, back in 1980, when Mercy Corps was just getting launched in 1982, I got communications from leaders of other aid agencies, some of them faith agencies that were, that were criticizing me for being too political and too controversial. Mm -hmm. And I, I was kind of shocked to think that, you know, um, that we don't have a, a holistic voice and actions to to put feet to our beliefs. I mean, you know, in Central America, there was a lot of killing and, and extrajudicial, you know, executions and uh, and murders on a wide scale. Guatemala, El Salvador, Nicaragua, um, and I was there in the middle of that. And human rights as an issue, I thought, was had to be part of an integrated mission that Mercy Corps. Would be part of, and and it's grown since that time now to become a very respected sort of dimension of aid agencies globally. They they've recognized this now. Mm -hmm. Liz, what are your thoughts about that? Well, the scriptures that I you know build my life upon the Christian scriptures. One of the main themes is that God is love, and I remember one of my uh, favorite philosophers, uh, Cornell West, if you might be familiar with him, he's uh, been a professor of philosophy for decades. And he has this quote that justice is what love looks like in public. Mm -hmm. 
And that has always, I, I heard that quote, I remember in a documentary I saw when I was a high school senior, I went to the University of Washington. And before I was there, I, I visited the campus for a, to watch a documentary about the plight of human trafficking. Mm -hmm. And he was a part of this documentary. And that quote has always made it clear to me that there is not this separation between the private and the public. Um, and I think that when, when we think that uh, any kind of faith can just be in this little shielded bubble, we miss the point of who the divine is in the world um, to spread that love wherever it goes, including into the halls of power. Um, and yeah, so that quote, I think always brings me back home to what my role is in the community, particularly as it relates to um, living it out in the public sphere. When you uh, quoted that philosopher, that reminded me of a philosopher that I had just read in trying to prepare for this conversation. Uh, and that is someone named Peter Moran, who said, we need to make the kind of society where it is easier for people to be good, uh, easier for people to be good. Do you agree with that? And what do we need to do? What sort of changes do we need to affect to make it easier for people to be good and to do good? Uh, wow, if I might venture to say that I think uh, our social structures need to be examined. And if we build a just society, it will automatically help funnel people into a, a, a consciousness of what our obligations are to the least of these. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that we can become, as I call it, an incarnational witness, where instead of preaching to people, you are living out your mission in a tangible way, just in our actions, our words, and our thoughts. Mm -hmm. you know, we become, as it were, Jesus to these other people that are in need or disenfranchised. Uh, that's what I would, would say as an answer. Absolutely. Well, and I think not only being Jesus, but finding Jesus in those who are disenfranchised. I always, mm -hmm. I always come back to one of the key scriptures of my faith, which is in the gospel of Matthew chapter 25, yep. uh, when Jesus tells this parable and says, you know, whenever you brought, visited someone who was sick, whenever you um, went and were with someone who was in prison, whenever you gave someone a cup of cool water, gave them something to eat, gave them clothes, you did so for me, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, to me, like that was me. <laughs> and um, this idea of a a society where it makes it easy for people to do good. I think part of our problem, and I'll, I'll speak for myself, part of my problem sometimes is that I can focus so much on doing good as altruism mm -hmm. and not doing good as in the interest of human survival and thriving. Mm -hmm. um, and one of my favorite teachers these days, she's a leader in a lot of liberation movements, is Adrienne Marie Brown. And she loves talking about how the healthiest she loves to look at, you know, nature creation and see what we can learn for how to be a human community. And she always comments on how the healthiest ecosystems in the world are those that are made up of plants, animals, and fungi who are thriving because they have adapted to benefit each other. Right. Um, you know, the animal uh, leaves droppings that decompose and the fungus processes the remains through the mycelial network and that lets the trees feed each other when they need nutrition. And anyway, that's a nerdy way of saying that uh, because uh, we're all so connected, when we can find those ways of doing good to support each other, it is actually good for us. 
-hmm. And I can make the moral arguments to the cows come home. I'm a preacher after all. (laughs) And I also think that there is a deep self-interest in mutually benefiting one another. Um, It helps all of us. And I think tapping into that could really help us unlock the potential for how we can change those structures that Dan is talking about so that we can all experience that human thriving. Uh, Pastor Liz is is stoking my spirit here. I just want to jump in. But, uh, you know, you mentioned Peter Morin. He was one of the co-founders of the Catholic Worker Movement, along with Dorothy Day. And Mm -hmm. in my readings this morning of scripture and and, and, and theologians, uh, there was a piece that was written by Dorothy Day, who, as you may know, came from a radical Marxist activist position and became a Roman Catholic and and that Roman Catholicism opened her up to a faith view that was all-encompassing regarding you know those who were in need and regarding the unjust social structures that that keep people down and she went from one kind of liberation theology into a more even bigger one with the Catholic uh, worker movement which is one of the great um, dynamics that has, and it's still going. And so in the early eighties, I was following her writings and her actions and her words and her example. And, and I, I have been always impressed with Peter Morin and Dorothy Day's work and their impetus. It might seem counterintuitive, but as we're talking about this sense of disconnection, that sense that I need to protect mine, uh, and I don't have time for the other, Uh, might that mask a sense of loneliness? Might that be fed by a sense of loneliness on the part of those people who are not willing or don't see it as being their place of getting involved and considering the plight of others? I think loneliness can definitely be a factor. I also think um, the word scarcity comes to mind. Mm -hmm. Um, You invite a preacher on this show, this is what you're going to get. But that one of the um, a stories that shows up in all four gospels is Jesus feeding the 5,000. And I was thinking about that story as we were preparing for this episode, because, you know, Jesus is with this huge crowd of 5,000 plus people and they're all hungry. It's time for all of them to eat. And the disciples do what I probably would have done, which is like, okay, Jesus, it's time to like send these people back to the village. They need to go take care of themselves, get something to eat. Uh, and Jesus says, why don't you give them something to eat? And I've been thinking about that with this conversation because to me, that's a central story in my faith. And it's a moment when Jesus is saying, this isn't about clan loyalties. This is not about your little circle. This is about how you're participating in the human community. And guess what? There were like, you know, 12 baskets of leftover food. So I think the disciples are worse kind of maybe in that scarcity mindset of there's not enough. They need to go figure this out on their own so that we can take care of ourselves and be in our compartmentalized little, you know, hamlets here. And Jesus says, no, actually, those are false divisions. Mm -hmm. Uh, And look at the abundance that came out of that moment of taking a risk and saying, yeah, we're going to feed each other and we're going to be a part of multiplying this food. And I mean, so that that idea of scarcity and abundance is what comes to mind for me uh, when we have this conversation. Teeing off on what Liz mentioned with the feeding of the 5,000. By the way, I spent many, many days and weeks on that very mountain where that happened. And wow. uh, <laughs> feed, 
feed. I mean, I lived on the Sea of Galilee for five months. So I was, I was in, you know, the region and I visited the sites. And the other, the other uh, sort of miraculous uh, encounter that Jesus had with, with groups of people was in Cana, when there was also a scarcity, as, as Pastor Liz uh, alludes to, that scarcity was that they ran out of wine. And so Jesus was forced to do a miracle by his mommy. <laughs> and, and, and Jesus said, well, hey, it's not my time yet, but okay, mom, I'll do this. And he ended up creating wine that was the best wine that had been had by the people. And in both cases of the feeding of the 5,000 breaking bread and, the, and the, the miracle of wine are pre-types of the Eucharistic celebration we have as people of Christian faith. Mm -hmm. Liz, you mentioned that in your uh, church that most of the people are vaccinated. Most of them have been very supportive. They are also members of the community, and that is not necessarily representative of the community as a whole. What do you think made the difference in terms of their personal choices, their orientation, as opposed to those of their neighbors? And what lessons does that hold for us? I think, you know, the orientation of my congregation, they were planted in the 1970s, um, and they really came together as a group of people who, from the beginning, uh, I think were living out that call that love or justice is what love looks like in public. Mm -hmm. You know, from their early, we're celebrating our 50th anniversary as a congregation this year. And uh, we've been having uh, storytellers from the old days <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. come in and it started this last, this last week. And one of our elders uh, who was there when they were founding this church told the story of how, uh, you know, in the early days of the church, uh, the county was going to take money that had been earmarked for affordable housing and use it to uh, pave a new road in a wealthier part of town. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, and so my church started, you know, making a stink about that and, and getting into public meetings and doing whatever they could to say, no, that's not what these public funds are for. They are for the good of the community, especially the most vulnerable folks. The county tried again, not too long after that, to use that money to build an ice rink. <laughs> And they stood up again and they said, no, that's not, those things are not for the public good and for the good of everyone who lives here. Mm -hmm. And so I think that being the core DNA of our congregation from the very founding has given them an orientation uh, towards all, you know, this is a public health issue and public health issues at the, at their very core are about how we can safely live together. <laughs> And so I think um, because of that outlook on the world that has always been true about who they are at Longview Presbyterian Church, uh, it was not a jump at all for them to think, yes, um, the science supports that these vaccines can keep me and my family safe, and it'll slow transmission, which will keep vulnerable members of our community safe. That's a no-brainer to them because that's always been how they thought about um, who Jesus was when he was alive and who he is alive in us today. That's always been a part of how they think of themselves as Christians. And Dan, as I look back at your work in instance after instance, you were in uh, countries, communities, regions that were outwardly hostile, not supporting. And yet somehow you were able to push through change and get them involved as part of the story. What do you think was central to your being able to do that, to succeed at that? You know, for me, it was going in and not telling people what they needed to do, but engaging them 
engaging them in a sense of community and partnership where we could learn from them, their local customs, their beliefs, and then where we could share maybe some technological solutions to their problems, mm -hmm. whether it's communication or uh, building a small business or helping with their cattle uh, or their orchards. Uh, it, it became a partnership whereby we, we grew uh, in, a, in a way that allowed us to, to incorporate uh, people of the local uh, population into Mercy Corps. In other words, 90% of Mercy Corps 6,000 staff are indigenous peoples mm -hmm. working in their own areas instead of being in a, an American sort of, hey, we'll, we'll show you what you need to do. Mm -hmm. For us, it was going in with a sense of humility, a sense of being able to learn from them, and then to see this partnership roll over into something that benefited everybody. Mm -hmm. As I hear both of you sharing, uh, it strikes me that what is so powerful is the sharing of story. And I think story is so central to what you've done to succeed uh, in your respective roles. And it's often said that the shortest distance between the head and the heart is through story. And so I thank you both so much for sharing and for the wisdom that you've imparted. Uh, I know our audience is going to be much richer, those of you out there that are watching or listening to this. So Dan and Liz, I thank you both so much for participating in Challenge 2.0 and hope we can do this again sometime. Thank you. What an honor, Jeff. Yeah, thank you, Jeff, for making a space for these stories. That's a skill you bring to, to our community. So thank you. And thank you, Dan, for this great conversation. Well, and thank you all of you out there for joining us on this edition of Challenge 2.0. We hope you'll join us again next week. Thank you very much. If you've enjoyed this program, found our conversations to be informative, entertaining, and thought-provoking, and the vision inspiring of people from different backgrounds who can disagree without being disagreeable, perhaps you might consider supporting our program with a contribution. Your support will not only help our program continue, it will also support the broader efforts of Paths to Understanding, our supporting parent nonprofit organization.